to the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball, as we have a, uh, a very fun episode coming up for you. Sometimes we'll we'll do the interview segment first, then we'll move into the segment where we uh, talk to each other. But today's interview segment was so much fun that I'm just like on the high from that. Uh, as I welcome in Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra. My name is Tyler Mon. Hey, guys, what's going on? Not too much. Yeah, not to, to tease the interview too much at the beginning. We usually do this in between uh but you know if if we could make a motion for like a fourth podcaster can we get my caps on just to to talk about minor league stories talk and, about anything like, i guess fit. I, I don't want to count out josh obviously with ghost of the minors i think that would actually flow really well we do ghost of the minors josh tells stories about old baseball teams and then we bring in mike to just tell a story about one specific minor league or old. that would be really fun but yeah it's a fun episode this week we got a lot to talk about talk about between that you know what we're going to talk about here with Ben and then September call-ups and three strikes which will not really be three strikes it's just going to be a lot to hit in that segment too yeah we will be hearing from Mike Caps, Round Rock Express broadcaster and author of the recent book Grinders uh very shortly but for now it's just three guys hanging out setting the scene giving everybody the uh a broad overview of what's going on chit in the chat chat in the chit Number one, our uh, our lead for every week with me uh, pretending like I know what I'm doing hosting this show. Uh, well, let's dive in and uh, talk about some of the stuff that Ben has on the site right now. Ben visited Beloit, Wisconsin back in June. Got a couple of uh, kind of layaway stories from Beloit, some stuff that uh, you've gotten a chance to get on the site, including one that was about float to the ballpark day. The, the minor league teams, especially in the Midwest League, I feel like are very often located on a river. What uh, What's going on here? Float to the ballpark day? Well, it had a different name than that. Yeah, I've had a, a mini Beloit content explosion this week after covering Beloit, uh, the Sky Carb, quite a bit earlier in the year when I visited. Um, you know, one of the stories I pulled out of my uh, road trip, you know, cachet in my stash, I always say I'm like a squirrel. Um, with the nuts. That's how I am with these road trip stories. But what you're referring to, Tyler, is drift to the diamond. And uh, because I can't stop writing about the way. Much better name than float to the ballpark day. Drift to the diamond, float to the ballpark, trying to come up with another one that would work. But whatever you want to call it, um, this is another Beloit story I've written because I aspire to be the number one national writer for all things related to the Beloit Skycarp. Um, but as we've talked about several times on the podcast, Beloit, their home of ABC Supply Stadium, is, is along the Rock River, which is a tributary of the Mississippi that starts in Wisconsin in, uh, I believe, right around Fond du Lac, Fond du Lac Wisconsin, and uh, flows uh, into um, Illinois. And right there at the Illinois-Wisconsin border is Beloit, is ABC Supply Stadium, and uh, the Rock River, one of the reasons that ballpark has such a small footprint is because the Rock River is hard up alongside it there on the third base side of the facility. So this led to Drift of the Diamond, where uh, fans got to the ballpark uh, about two hours before a Sunday afternoon game. And then they loaded up in the Goose Caboose, the team shuttle bus, because, of course, a Sky Carp is a goose. And uh, we're driven to a launch point on the Rock River for tubing. And then they tubed in a southward direction uh, on an inner tube all the way back to the ballpark. And uh, just one of those cool, quirky promos, which I've been doing this uh, long enough. Some might say too long. Uh, I wrote about something fairly similar a decade ago when the Missoula Osprey of the Pioneer League, now the Missoula Paddleheads of the Independent Pioneer League, uh, they had a float to the ballpark promotion because they are located along the uh, Clark Fork River. So it's obviously not the type of thing too many teams can do, but it has always sounded really appealing to me. I'm sure people listening to this podcast would find that idea pretty appealing to show up at a ballpark early or near a ballpark early or and uh, then take an inner tube along a river uh, to the game. And uh yeah, so just a really cool thing. And, uh, you know, in talking to the team, they said, hey, this is our first time. A lot of the feedback we got was it should be longer next time. It was only about a 20-minute ride. So I think next time they're going to go quite a bit farther up, um, you know, into who knows where. But uh, 
you know, farther up. Hey, maybe they'll go all the way to Fond du Lac and uh, start at the uh, at the uh, terminus of the Rock River or whatever the word is for where a river starts. That's a tributary. I don't know. I'm not too big on my, uh, you know, these geographical terms with bodies of water, but they almost certainly will do it again. Probably have a longer ride. Probably get more people involved. And uh, yeah, good place to start. And that's just a really cool alternate alternative mode of transportation to a uh, minor league baseball ballpark. And I was racking my brain yesterday. I don't know if you guys can think of anything offhand. I can't really think of any other places besides Beloit, uh, you know, and then Missoula where you could take a inner tube to like legitimately take an inner tube to a, uh, to a ball game. I mean, there's teams along the Mississippi river, but I'm not yeah, sure be a little on the Mississippi. Yeah. You probably get caught up in one of those steamboats with like the wheel and then it would like, you know, like lift you up and you get you know, shot wheel. out of it. Yeah. It would be a, a whole slapstick <laughs> scenario um, or worse. So probably not that. Uh, I wish more teams could do it, but you know, how many teams are located along a river? Not too many. All right, Ben. Well, from alternate alternative ways, to arrive at the ballpark to your latest newsletter feature, which is alternative names uh, for minor league teams. You have three of them in, in the newsletter that are all throwbacks. It, it, teams like to have throwback nights, obviously, and sometimes they throw it back to alternative identities. Um, what were the three that you chose for the newsletter? Yeah, this is just a fun topic I thought uh, would be good to write about in the newsletter. That is, of course, the Ben's Biz Beat newsletter arriving in your inbox every Thursday. And I say arriving in your inbox because, of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you already subscribe. Because how could you listen to me and not immediately want all of the content related to me that's available? If you do not subscribe, go to MILB.com and click on the newsletter registration page. And please subscribe. I've been having a lot of fun writing it. but uh, And one of the reasons I like that is because you can... Go in all sorts of directions with what you write about, and it's a little less formal than a, uh, you know, a proper website article. And uh, I was just thinking, hey, we're here at the end of the season. You know, I have a promo spreadsheet. I've been seeing these throwback identities on the promo spreadsheet. Haven't been writing about them a lot much. So I just picked three, and there's obviously more than three um, current throwback identities that are, um, you know, being employed by minor league teams. Throwback in this case, of course, meaning uh, teams that suit up as a previous incarnation of the ball ball club. And, uh, you know, one that I put in there and that Tyler has written about in the past is El Paso has this year. It's been on a monthly basis, uh, Diablo days. And um, so the Chihuahuas uh, about once a month suit up as the Diablos. And that was a Texas League club in the 80s and 90s. And uh, there's two, I think, primary iterations of the Diablos. And I think the one that the team has been doing more recently is the, the Chili D with the anthropomorphic chili pepper and uh, kind of a purple tinge look to it. The previous Diablo uniforms uh, from an earlier era kind of look a little bit. How would you say, Tyler, you've uh, you're a uniform guy. The, the original Diablo marks, they kind of got a little bit of a Padres vibe. Yeah. They're, they're very, uh, they're very 70s Southwest. It's like that all lowercase, um yeah the bright colors yeah a little bit of the the Padres vibe yes that's a fun one I know the Chihuahuas have suited up in different eras of the Diablos currently I believe focusing on the Chili D um also took a look at the Winston-Salem Dash who uh have and I love this as a alliterative phrase uh Warthog Wednesdays and they suit up as the Warthogs on Wednesdays I think they've been doing that for a number of years now that was always a team name I really liked, Winston-Salem Warthogs, just because a warthog is a very striking, some would say ugly, but who am I to judge what's ugly or beautiful in this world? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but the warthogs were around from 1995 through 2008, and I couldn't find much information online, like why were they the warthogs? And as far as I could tell, it was the winner in a uh, like a local newspaper named the team contest, and apparently the North Carolina Zoo at that time in the mid-90s had recently acquired some warthogs. So I imagine all of North Carolina kind of had warthog mania back then, like, oh, we're going to go see the warthogs. <laughs> and uh, then it became the name of the team. Uh, they, of course, became the Dash uh, in 2009. Uh, you know, the Dash name references the Dash between Winston and Salem, which I always have to be pedantic about and point out that it's actually a hyphen. I feel like legally obligated to do that for some reason. But they are the Winston-Salem Warthogs on Wednesday, and that's a, and they got the Warthog mascot Wally. I still, you know, still making cameos at the ballpark, and I just think the world needs more Warthogs. I mean, I don't know the Warthog population. Maybe we have too many Warthogs. I don't know, but I don't see many. 
I live in New York City, but still, I'd like to see more warthogs. And uh, speaking of a, a living thing I would not like to see, the Kannapolis Cannonballers, who previously were the Intimidators, they go back to the identity before the Intimidators and suit up as the Piedmont Bowl Weevils. And, um, you know, Kannapolis is a textile town. You know, it was literally a, a company town uh, back in the day. And uh, so obviously um, bull weevils were a problem back then because in a textile town, you, you're dealing with bull weevils who are you know, crop decimators. So it seems like a, it's an interesting uh, name to me for sure. It definitely, I think, was ahead of its time in terms of minor league team names becoming a little weird, zany, offbeat, you know, the bull weevils. But it's also a little funny because this is an animal that uh, or an insect that you know, could not have been widely beloved in the area. You know, it's not like, oh, we love our bull weevils. Like they probably hated bull weevils, but then they named the team after something they hated. But I don't know who human emotions are complex. And uh, again, who am I to comment on uh, the Kannapolis region's relationship with bull weevils? But that is another one still in use, a throwback identity. There are definitely more out there, but those are three I focused on in the uh, latest issue of the newsletter. I don't know if you guys have any... Uh, favorite throwbacks that are currently going on or ones that you would just like to see? Um, I mean, when I went to a Worcester game earlier this summer and took my nephew, I've talked about that game on the podcast before, it was actually Pawsox Night, uh, which I thought would be conflicting because as many listeners know, the Worcester Red Sox used to be the Pawtucket Red Sox. They left Pawtucket. They never really got to have a goodbye ceremony because the pandemic and all that happened there. Um, so they, they moved to Worcester, which is the heart of Massachusetts compared to Rhode Island uh and I thought it would be a little weird and then I went to the game and it was very nostalgic all of a sudden just to see Pawtucket stuff again and to see their mascots out on the field I mean even I know like the name isn't that different it's still Pawtucket Red Sox versus Worcester Red Sox but it what they're colloquially called it's the Woo Sox versus the Paw Sox so even then uh it still felt different and it felt nostalgic in a way that I was not prepared for and people seem to really enjoy it so I hope it's something that they they kind of keep doing just so the people of Rhode Island still have some connection to the Red Sox Triple A team. Um, I'm staying in the in the Pacific Coast League and not far from El Paso where the Chihuahua slash Diablos, but uh, the Albuquerque Isotopes do throwback nights to the Albuquerque Dukes. And Albuquerque, of course, is known as the Duke City, and the Duke's logo is amazing. The Duke's uniforms are amazing. And um, it's neat because similarly to the El Paso situation, the Dukes were actually an entirely different franchise. They moved away, and there was, I think, a a one- or two-year layoff with no minor league baseball uh, in Albuquerque, and then the Isotopes came in. So you're honoring a a past franchise that had its own history, which I think is really cool, Um, and I, I love that one. Um, and it's it's as close as I think it comes um, to, you know, the the ideal throwback situation for a team because you have your own specific identity, but you can still honor something else without everybody clamoring all the time for like, why don't you just go back to being the Dukes? Because you're not the Dukes. You're a totally different team. I also think it's great the amount of teams that we have seen around the country who have started doing Negro Leagues throwbacks um, to their own region's baseball history. You know, you think of uh, the the Frisco Rough Riders this year did a, a team from Dallas. The uh, the Tulsa Drillers were the T-Town Clowns, which they've done for the last couple of years. Um, I just saw that Rancho Cucamonga did uh, a Negro Leagues throwback night the other night. Um, and I think that is as cool as it gets because you're telling stories that uh, have been largely either covered, you know, by the the sands of time, washed over or forgotten in a lot of ways. And uh, to honor the history of Negro Leagues baseball is an important thing uh, for the baseball community to do. And I feel like teams have really started to embrace that, um, which has been very, very cool in recent years. And um, I think seeing teams do it has made other teams go, oh, we probably have history in that regard in this city as well. And, you know, we talked about it with, with Greenville, trying to locate you know, the home of black baseball in that community at that time, which is now like part of a, a city park, but there's no designation for it and and all of that. Um, there's really valuable historical research being done by teams, um, which I find very, very cool. But this is a great, uh, a great topic in the newsletter because it makes people all think about well, what is my favorite if I had to pick a favorite. Yeah, and speaking of the Dukes, Tyler, um, the Isotopes ballpark is located in essentially the same location as where the Dukes played. So that ballpark has, um, you know, photos in it that of, of uh, and I don't know the name of the previous ballpark. Let's just call it Duke Stadium. 
Um, but a cool aspect of it is cars would park along like the along the perimeter of the ballpark in the outfield and people kind of like a drive-in movie would park up there and watch the game, you know, from their cars. It's just like a really cool, uh, really cool image. And of course, I uh, totally agree on the, the Negro league throwbacks and how that's um, something I still can think, uh, you know, that can be tapped into uh, much more than it currently is. And not to go on a tangent, but you know, everyone's all, not everyone's always, but often there comes the debate of like best baseball movies and this, that, and the other, and I just got to thinking, like, I feel like we're really overdue for a really good Negro League movie um, or a bio of somebody like, you know, Josh Gibson or Satchel Paige, but one with the real budgets, real actors. Yeah, that's a good um, movie. It's just like we don't really have that in the mix. There is a movie that I have yet to see that I need to see. Was that Bingo Long's Traveling, Traveling All-Stars? Um, but in terms of anything recent, that movie's I think, something like 45 years old. Um, I just feel that the time is, you know, more than ripe. It is overdue to to have a a movie that celebrates uh, that era and contextualizes that era of, of baseball history. And I just think that that was done well with period detail, you know, the ballparks, the, the conditions in America at that time, the, the the style of play and the way the players moved and strategized. I, I just think that would be a phenomenal movie. And you know, selfishly, I'm just getting tired of these tired conversations about baseball movies i don't even like that much in the first place now that i'm getting cranky no disrespect to you know all the baseball classics out there obviously ben not a big fan of air bud seventh inning fetch i think that's <laughs> i will make an exception for that that is <laughs> that is a, a true classic then what else you got on the site what else coming to the site oh i got a lot i'm dipping back into ballpark guides a little bit um, and really, I think a lot of what's coming in the very near future is contingent on uh, some end of season road trips I have coming up, still working out the details. But, you know, here we are talking on Thursday, um, kind of last minute, but I think I'm going to head to uh, Hudson Valley, the home of the Renegades, Wappinger Falls over the weekend and try to uh, visit the Renegades. So I hope that all goes well, <laughs> according to plan, and I can get that together. And then the following week, I'm going to head out you know, west from New York City, but, you know, driving distance west, take the long drive out to see the Erie Seawolves um, for a game or two, and then uh, hit up Buffalo and maybe Rochester. I'm putting the uh, finishing touches, uh, clearly having procrastinated a bit or just been a little confused over what I'm able to do at this juncture in the season, just balancing my schedule and everything. But, you know, I think that's one of the things is it used to be Labor Day weekend was, you know, game over as regarded uh, minor league baseball. The playoffs would start usually, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday after Labor Day. Uh, but now um, in double A a little bit and certainly in triple um, A, we have uh, regular season baseball for well into September and uh, gives me a chance to travel a little bit and have more uh, in season content, stretch that out, more road trip stuff. And uh, like the squirrel, collect those uh, article nuts and stash them away for the long, cold winter ahead. Benjamin Hill, you can find on Twitter at Ben's Biz, on Instagram at TheBen'sBiz, and uh, you can find his stuff at MILB.com. And uh, thanks, man. We'll uh, talk to you next week. Sounds good. I I can't wait. I literally can't wait. I'm going to be thinking about next week, even though we haven't even (laughs) finished this week's segment. That's how much I'm looking forward to it. Very exciting stuff. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Here on the show before the show podcast, we are happy to be joined by the only announcer broadcaster that the Round Rock Express have ever known, Mike Caps, who is also the author of the new book, Grinders, Baseball's Intrepid Infantry. Mike, thanks for being with us today. Oh, Benjamin, you, you know, I, I love talking baseball and you've been around me enough to know that. And, and I was just thrilled to death that you guys wanted to have me on. Yeah, absolutely. Our pleasure. And, um, you know, before we get into the book, uh, you know, I was able to write a story about you earlier this year when I visited Round Rock in May, and that was recently after your 3,000th game uh, with the Round Rock Express. So big milestone. And in writing that piece, you know, I learned more about your uh, maybe unorthodox path to becoming a minor league baseball broadcaster. So, again, before we get in the book, if you could just kind of tell us, uh, you know, I guess the short version of the very long story of how you ended up uh, being the Round Rock Express broadcaster. Well, I had a chance to sign uh, out of high school and didn't even know it until years later. But 
that aside, I, I stopped playing baseball to do radio news to finish my college degree, which was in uh, radio and TV broadcasting at Sam Houston University in Huntsville. And uh, I just got away from baseball. Never was really away from it, but got away from it in terms of two different network jobs, uh, the last one being CNN and covering the Gulf War. And I was in Haiti when they overthrew Aristide and I just saw so much death and destruction over such a long period of time that I woke up one morning and I busted my head wide open with a bedpost and I got into therapy and I told a bunch of people, I, if I had, if I signed another contract with CNN, I wouldn't live to see the end of it. I was, I was that dark inside. Well, I got into therapy and the whole thing worked out and, uh, I wrote a book. My first book was with the scout who discovered Nolan Ryan, Red Murph, and it was called The Scout Searching in the, for the Best in Baseball. And we were promoting it one day out at spring training uh, on the Angels broadcast. And I kept hearing this voice, you can do this, you can do this. So I, I'm 45 years old. And I asked the broadcaster, Bob Starr, the late Bob Starr, if I was too old to get started. He says, you're a puppy. Well, I make two phone calls and I get a, a job in, in an independent league. Then the next year I'm a triple A at Nashville. Then the next year I start doing ESPN fill-in games and major league fill-in games. Round Rock came about in the year 2000 and I've been here ever since. And that's as about as short as I can make it. <laughs> yeah. Long story. And, uh, and I know you have so many stories about your reporting days and CNN and police reporting. And uh, oh, wow. like you said to me, uh, minor league baseball seems like a, proverbial walk in the park compared to covering that type of stuff. Well, it's, it's, and, and not, not in the sense of that it's easy because I mean, there are demands on you from, from January to October that a lot of people don't go through. I mean, we're traveling all the time and, and, but I embrace that and I embrace that, embrace the players, embrace the managers, embrace the staff uh, with the round rock express. We're great. So it's, it's really, um, it's really nirvana in a way for me. Yeah, it's definitely a grind, um, one you enjoy. And speaking of grinds, the book Grinders, uh, Baseball's Intrepid Infantry um, came out uh, really recently. And uh, I know you're promoting it all over the place, getting lots of great responses. And it is about the grinders, the kind of people who make up the game, populate the game. Um, you might not know their names unless you really follow the game on a on a, on a really close basis and you're just trying to tell all these stories and it's divided among you know the pen gear dirt um grass family uh you're just telling so many different stories about the sort of unknown heroes that have populated the minor league baseball world for you know, as long as minor league baseball or the professional baseball world as long as that's been around uh tell me about how this book came about and uh, you know what inspired you to put it together there's so many different profiles within this well there are and and it Honest to God, it started when I was nine years old. My grandfather was a pirate's prospect until World War One, cost him hearing in an ear, and he lost balance and couldn't play. But he took me out to Old Burnett Field, just across the Trinity River in downtown Dallas, and we're watching the Minneapolis Millers play the Dallas-Fort Worth Rangers, AAA Boston, Minneapolis, AAA Kansas City A's, Dallas-Fort Worth, and my grandfather points to the left fielder. He said, that kid's going to be something someday. Well, he was something the very next year. He was the rookie of the year, and later a Hall of Famer. His name was Yastrzemski. might know that guy. Well, he also had check marks on his scorecard, and I said, what are those check marks by those guys' names? And he said, these guys are going to be bouncing back and forth between the big leagues and AAA all year long. And he said, you got to respect them. You got to respect them because while the stars are the stars, these guys are the engine that drives baseball's bus. But, well, guys, I tell you, that stuck with me. And I woke up at early on a January morning in 2018 and started writing down names. Well, a, a dear friend of my family, uh, Chuck Hartenstein, who now has passed on, um, really related because he was a grinder. We sat in his living room one night. My wife and I had been after us to write down these stories. And we, we wrote down 200 names of potential candidates. And I started calling around. I started with guys I knew. 
I talked to Tal Smith, the Houston Astros former president, for some guidance, what his thoughts were. Um, and we just went to work. Some of these guys I've been around in minor league baseball. Some I hadn't. Some Chuck had. And other stories were just so in compelling, I felt like I had to tell them. And, I mean, we go from uh, problems black guys had in the Jim Crow South uh, to Hank Bauer, the old New York Yankees outfielder who played 12 years in the big leagues and never said a word about it, but had uh, but had tremendous problems because he had shrapnel in his back and both calves. Now that's that's a grinder. And then he, you know, he was the first manager to manage the Orioles uh, to a World's Championship. So his story is so intriguing. And then Bobby Jones, who managed here for us and coached in the big leagues with the Rangers. Um, went to Vietnam and called artillery fire and he had some awfully good stories to tell. And he's as thankful that he lived through that Vietnam deal as I am living through the Gulf war and other things I saw. So there's a lot of synergy when you talk to people um, about their stories and a fellow named Travis Driscoll who pitched briefly for the Orioles and, and, and Astros way back in, in the early nineties. He said, this is, this is a godsend for me because nobody ever paid attention to us. But he said, somebody had to have some damn good teammates to play uh, to, to promote those stars. And that's a, that's an interesting way of looking at it from a grinder's perspective. But, you know, you look at the rosters, what, what, they had 20,000 people playing the big leagues and like, what are there? Two, two, 16, two, 17 in the hall of fame now. So somebody's not a star, you know, and those are the guys that we write about. And kind of pivoting from that, you're talking about a lot of historical context with that. Um, in your travels now through Round Rock, through all the Pacific Coast League, who are some modern day grinders that you feel like you're either covering on a daily basis or getting to see through those travels in the PCL? Well, let's start back in 05. Uh, Scott Seabold was with Albuquerque. Jason Wood was with Albuquerque. And on, on it went, I mean, I'm looking at I've looked at six guys this year that that are possibilities. Just their stories are so incredible and they're willing to walk through hell and back to get a chance to play. I mean, let's talk about the couple that are here. And I don't want to give names because I don't want to give away my stories yet. But um, one of them actually. um it's incredible. He's from from um, the Dominican, and he never thought he'd ever have a chance to play. And somebody saw him playing catch out in the street, and there he is. And he's in AAA. He's a step from the big leagues, and he never thought he'd get the chance. I mean, it's um, – oh, gee whiz. It, it, they're, the woods are full of them, and the, the art form in this is – to get them to sit down long enough to talk about it and really get with them to figure out where they are in their life pursuit and how dedicated they will be in the future. Cause gosh, some, one of them could uh, strain a knee or need knee surgery and they're done. And it's a, it's a dicey proposition, this game in, in the first place. And, and uh, with the politics of, stars and and who's going to get a chance to get called up first some really good players really really world-class players get left on the sidelines because of the the way the system works yeah and how does that kind of affect the way you call games i mean when you are talking about players all the game long and there are the stars and you know i want to ask about josh young in a little bit you know one of the stars currently on round rock but those guys take up a lot of oxygen you still have to talk about everybody in the lineup how does the way you've written this book changed the way you broadcast the game. You know, I, I think it may have been the other way around, Sam, I broadcast the game. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a full service believer in everybody who's playing that game that day. And so um, it's, it's sort of like the chicken or the egg, which came first. I think I just had from, from the very day I started this at age 45, the the message that my grandfather was 
pounded in my ear for years, even when he watched me play high school ball and college ball. And that is, these are the guys, the engine that drives baseball's bus. And I just think that uh, that stayed with me. And I think, I think it does, Sam, and it's a good question. I think it does affect the way I call a game because I just have an appreciation for these people uh, who don't make all the money in the world, but yet would give their lives just to put on a major league uniform one time. And, and I, I, it, it definitely does affect it. And um, the beautiful thing is with the internet being what it is, we're able to look up a lot of things and reach a, a lot of people who know people who know these guys. And so the stories just keep rolling out and, and there's an infinitesimal number of these guys who really qualify for this. Uh, you know, I'm 71 going on 35 and I just think uh, I'm hoping that I'll have a chance to write a couple hundred more of them. You know what I'm saying? This is great. I'm enjoying you guys. This is awesome. Uh, well, Mike, you um, you mentioned him a little bit um, when you first started talking about the book, but your co-author, co Chuck Twiggy Hartenstein, or is it Hartenstein? Hartenstein. Hartenstein. Yeah. Uh, he passed away before the um, book was published, but uh, obviously worked a ton with you on putting it together. Can you tell me more about uh, you know who he was and your relationship with him? Chuck Hartenstein was raised in Seguin, Texas, about 60 miles south of Austin. And he pitched on a state championship team in, in high school. And he had learned to throw. His parents had no money. He learned to throw by throwing rocks at targets and making up his own little baseball games in his mind about how he was going to handle a, a particular – his uh, the hitter he was facing, team uh, situations, game situations. and. Uh, his high school teammates told me, you know, at the end of the day, he had such a strong arm when he came to high school and it was from throwing those rocks. He would not only just throw at targets, he would long toss just to see how far he could throw. Well, that developed his arm strength. And after that, um, he started to attract attention. He got a full scholarship to the University of Texas, uh, had a chance to sign. This is before the draft, had a chance to sign with the Phillies but he promised his coach, Bib Falk, he'd stay for four years. Well, he had no job when he got out of UT, even though he's still in the all-time top five um, ERAs in the College World Series. This guy was phenomenal, and he, he couldn't break a pane of glass in what we know as hard-throwing relievers now. But he survived 14 seasons and, and became a pitching coach. End of the day, he ends up signing with my cousin, Billy Caps, longtime scout with the Cubs down here, and off he went. And, and people said, he's too skinny. How's he ever going to play? Well, he pitched 18 innings of a 25-inning game in the Texas League in 1968 or 65, and, and that, that's what got him to the Cubs the first time. And just to be around him, being a grinder just oozed out of his pores because he talked you know, he didn't have the easiest career. He didn't have, uh, he didn't end up with a big money, but, but he had big love for the game. And that's, that's, that's sort of intertwined in every story we tell here that the unabashed love these guys have for what they did or, and some of what these guys are still doing. All right, Mike. Well, I, I did say I wanted to ask about Josh Young at, at a certain point. So I guess I'll get to that now. Just, Sure. You know, he's been knocking on the door of the majors ever since he came back from that shoulder injury. You've gotten to see him more than anybody really in, in the world these last couple of weeks. What have you seen, uh, Josh, as he closes in on the bigs? Let me tell you, we saw him briefly last year, Sam. And, and you know, his dad uh, is a well-respected high school coach in Texas. Just a great, great guy. And he has a younger brother that was just drafted in the first round as well. Josh himself when you watch him walk into the clubhouse, the first thought is big leaguer. He carries himself on the field as a big leaguer. He carries himself uh, onto airplanes as a big leaguer. He's, he's willing to joke and Josh with his teammates and all, and have fun. Uh, he's a good clubhouse guy, uh, world of power. He's uh, to me, he's going to be a hit first 
field second, third baseman in the big leagues for a lot of time. And I can make you a case. If he had not had to have labrum surgery in February, he might already be with the Rangers as their starting third baseman. And they're still looking for a starting third baseman. And I'm, I'm thinking, even though we're in a real playoff run with uh, Oklahoma City now, I'm thinking we're going to have to do it without Josh over the last two weeks. But you never know. I, I don't have any in, special insight about that. He's just he's just a big leaguer at his core. And he's so fun to watch. And uh, every play, every single play, his nose in the dirt and get up, go after it. I, I just love it. I love it to death. Mike, when you got somebody like Josh, we actually talked to him on the on the podcast in the real early days of the pandemic. And I remember just being able to, to understand his perspective on things. And Sam would correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure Josh is the one who told us that the way he was keeping up with his hand-eye coordination uh, for for the strike zone was by playing MLB The Show. Like, he couldn't go out and face pitching, so he was playing video games to try to remember what it's like to judge pitches and all that. But to, to see somebody like that and what they bring to the guys around them over your time in baseball, being able to watch so many grinders and so many players who aren't going to reach that level – what is it like knowing that those guys are contributing something to the ones who do? Because I feel like that's sort of an underrated element of the players who uh, may spend their careers in the minor leagues. They're still contributing. They're still helping get those guys over the line. How gratifying is that to get a chance to talk to some of those guys about what it's been like playing with the stars who eventually go on, even if they don't make it, and what they contribute in that? To a person, this is a great, great question, and I'm glad you asked it. To a person, I have not met one who gripes about his fate at the AAA level. Now, I heard a bunch of guys in AA bitching and moaning, right? These guys at AAA are, are seasoned enough to know how difficult the game really is. And maybe double A kids don't realize that yet. They know the ups and downs. They've had to fight those battles. And it's almost as if, well, I keep going back to current war days. They're the foot soldiers. They are the foot soldiers. And um, their work does rub off because I've talked to some kids. I haven't talked specifically to Josh about this. But I've talked to some guys that have who've come through here who've had pretty, pretty lengthy and pretty decent careers in the big leagues, and they always tend to point out, "Look, I had great teammates at all levels." So that says that that side of the ledger understands the gift they've been given by the grinders who work their asses off to help them get to where they're going, and they appreciate it. And I just think. Um, that, that, that statement right there brought the hair on the back of my neck because it means so much, not only to the grinders, but to the stars. And I think that's one of the thousand beautiful things about this game. Well, the book now grinders baseball's intrepid infantry has been out for about, uh, two months now, as we speak. Um, I know you've been doing a lot of promotion for it. Uh, what's the reaction been to it so far? Oh, my heavens. It, um, <laughs> everybody who wrote in the book, from league presidents to Reed Ryan uh, and on and on, really are blown away by it. I did a lot of research on this to make sure nobody had written anything quite like it. There are a lot of minor league stories out there, but I don't think uh, that they were captured in, in totality the way these are. And we tried to mix it and match it uh, to make it easy to read, number one, a quick read, number two, and a meaningful read. And the feedback I've gotten has just been stupendous. And that's why we're continuing to try to promote it nationally uh, in every venue we can come up with. And it's a lot different. Let me tell you, gentlemen, promoting a, 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 a book in, in 2022 than it was in 1996. 1996, the publisher did all of that promotion work. And they had us on every major talk show from New York to Los Angeles, from 
from Calgary to Houston, and it was it, it, it did help sell books. Nowadays, sports talk, unless you're on a specific major league channel or one of those, it's guy talk, and maybe you, you get you get 12 seconds if they'd even let you on. So it's different, but it's a, it's a challenge, and uh, it's a challenge grinders will have to meet, <laughs> meaning me. <laughs> well, we'll, we're happy we'll to, we're happy to have had you on for uh, quite a bit more than 12 seconds, and, uh, you know, that's what we're here for. You know, we, we love the minor leagues, too. Well, I and, appreciate that. And, uh, you know, the, we what we – spend our careers telling minor league stories in our own ways. And obviously that's what sure. you've done as well for, for so long. So once again, the book is baseball or grinders baseball's intrepid infantry uh, on Stony Creek publishing and uh, yeah, highly recommended. And I'm sure a lot of listeners to this podcast would enjoy it uh, written by Mike caps, who we've just been talking to and the late Chuck Twiggy Hartenstein. Uh, Mike, thanks so long for uh, thanks so much for being with us on the show before the show podcast. Well, thank you for the story you did on me in May, and and the three of you are great, man. I'll I'll come on with you anytime, and we'll just talk beer beer brands if you want. I don't care. <laughs> we might take you up on that. Yeah, don't don't, don't make a yeah, don't, don't tempt us. We might do that. Well, yeah. I, no, I'm 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 dead serious. Uh, we'll start at Lone Star in Texas, and you guys can go in whichever way you want to go. <laughs> that sounds pretty great. Sounds good. Well, cool. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been great. You bet. You bet. Take care of yourself. Huge thanks to Mike Caps from the Round Rock Express for joining the show. That was so much fun today. And uh, a guy who he talked about, Josh Young, is someone who is in the conversation in prospect land in September. And that's where we're headed here in uh, this week's episode of the show before the show. It is September 1st. So rosters are expanding, have expanded, and we have already seen top prospects bumped up to the big league level uh, where they have made some very quick and dramatic impacts. Uh, and we're going to talk about a bunch of those guys today. But Sam, give us kind of the rundown of, uh, of where things have stood over the last few days, seeing all of this prospect movement. Yeah, I mean, happy September to everybody who follows prospect stuff. I mean, this is this used to be a much bigger deal, right? Like it, it feels weird to talk about the olden days of September because uh, it still feels so recent, but really this is like the second year in which this has happened in which rosters can expand, but not to include every man of your 40-man roster. Not that that used to happen either, but everybody was eligible to be called up in September. Now it's just limited to 28. Obviously, that's a bump up from 26. You get two more guys. It's helpful for the stretch run. Uh, but yeah, 26 to 28 is much smaller than what we used to see, which led to like parades coming out of the bullpen um, very deep benches, games would last a very long time in September. This limits that a little bit, but it still gives opportunities to prospects. Um, so 28 guys on the active roster, 29 if it's a doubleheader day. Uh, 14 of those can be pitchers, but no more. You can't have, again, worries about those parades coming out of the bullpen. You can't have 15, 16 pitchers. That's capped at 14. Um, so we're seeing a lot of teams bring up one position player, one pitcher, something like that. Uh, but yeah, now is a time in which organizations across baseball are calling up top prospects, and it's for multiple reasons. You'll have some teams, and we're going to talk about two of the big ones here coming up, and they're both coming at it from different points of view. Some teams are calling up their top prospects to aid in a stretch run, try to push for the playoffs, somebody who has earned that look uh, at the major leagues, and they, they've performed well, they're capable of hitting the ground running, all of those things. Some teams are calling up prospects just to give them a look at the majors and say, hey, listen, this last month, we don't really have that much to play for. We want you getting that experience. We want you having seen the show. So by the time you come back in 2023, you get that period of adjustment out of the way. You can take all of that information from September, put it into your offseason work, know how they're pitching you or how they're, you know, trying to hit you, for example, um, and prepare to potentially win a Rookie of the Year award in 2023. That is important because, as we know, at the beginning of this year, we saw Bobby Wood Jr., Julio Rodriguez, Spencer Torkelson, uh, Adley Rutschman would have been, but he was hurt at the time. So many teams use prospects on their opening day rosters because if you do that with the top 100 prospects and they get serious award consideration, either Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, MVP, while they're still arbitration eligible, you get an extra draft pick. 
So now all of a sudden there is incentive for, you know, when, when we first looked at this, we looked at it from the other end of like, hey, we're going to see a lot of prospects on opening day rosters. Now we're seeing it from the other end. You get called up now, still retain your rookie eligibility going into 2023, but you have that experience. Now you're even more likely to win a rookie of the year award. Um, so I love that that that's happening. Uh, it's these teams that aren't really competitive right now that I think should be giving their prospects a chance. That didn't always happen in years past. Adley Rutschman probably should have been called up by the Orioles at the end of last year. I'm not saying service time played a role in that. It was his first full season. There could have been lots of factors going in there. But had this happened, maybe there was a chance that Adley Rutschman would have been up even earlier than we saw. Um, and we wouldn't have had to have waited for him to come back from an injury to make that major league debut. Um, so now we're seeing that at both ends. And I think that makes for a really exciting month of September. Obviously, we still have minor league baseball going on. Um, it, it's extending past its normal date. We're not just ending on Labor Day anymore. Uh, but if you're looking at guys getting the calls to the majors, which is one of the most exciting parts of our job, there's going to be a lot of that. It's already happened in the last week, and there, there could be even more in the weeks to come. We have seen already some dream starts to big league careers. Um, we saw the video of Gunnar Henderson, the top Orioles prospect, being told that he would head to the big leagues, uh, which never gets old. And then he goes out and homers in his first at bat. Uh, Corbin Carroll uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks making the jump to the major league level. The the guys who get this September call, it's such a momentous occurrence for them, obviously. For fan bases, it's big too. And, you know, the Orioles right now, are the team that uh, I think most weirdly fits into this equation of uh, you've got so much of this talent bringing these guys up, competing, not competing, building for next year. Uh, the D-backs are not in that conversation, obviously not in a, in a playoff race right now, but they've got a lot of talent coming up. Uh, it's exciting to see these guys at the major league level and to see them making instant impacts is very cool. Yeah, and, and I think at the beginning of the year, one thing we talked about was that some of those guys who got called up got off to slow starts. I mean, Julio Rodriguez in April looked nothing like the Julio Rodriguez we know now. Um, congrats to him, by the way, for getting that massive contract. That was one of the most exciting moments in baseball. Very cool. Uh, the last congrats week. to Julio. Yes. Congrats to congrats to him. Congrats to Seattle. You're, you're both going to enjoy each other. Eight and a half, for crying out loud. But anyways, um, but some of those guys got off to slow starts. It's very early now. I don't, I don't want to make any sweeping assumptions that uh, Gunnar Henderson and, and Corbin Carroll are going to continue to play this way. But those guys looked like they belonged from day one. Gunnar Henderson homering in his first at-bat, not doing just that, losing his helmet in the process, giving everybody a look at his luscious locks as he's running. Uh, was a perfect welcome to the majors moment for him. Corbin Carroll was hitting the ball hard in his debut. Um He's already shown off multiple 30 feet per second sprint uh, sprint speeds, which is above the elite level. We always said he had plus plus speed. That's hitting the ground running literally uh, for Arizona. These guys have been really good lately. Uh, Gunnar Henderson had a little bit of a slump, but came back with a, a pair of three hit games. Corbin Carroll's hit the ball everywhere he's played in 2022. These guys had the momentum. The, as big a jump as it is to the major leagues, um, these guys were certainly stretched out. They were ready for these opportunities, and it's been really fun to for all of baseball to see about the guys we've been talking about uh, for months and years in some cases now. Uh, and you know, when we say Gunnar Henderson's power is real, people believe you, but then all of a sudden they see him homering his debut, and it's like, oh yeah, no, that's going to play. You can say Corbin Carroll's a really good defensive outfielder and really good on the base pass and people can believe you all of a sudden when they see him sprinting around the bases like Roadrunner, then it's like, Oh wow. Who's this guy? This is like, well, we've been talking about him for a while. So if you're listening to the show, you know about all this stuff, but it's just very edifying to, to see it happen immediately at the, at the top level. All right, Sam, if we uh, are going to see more of these moves in September of this year, is there anybody else who you've got an eye on who we could see at the big league level uh, from now through the end of the season? Yeah, uh, I'm going to keep my eye on how Grayson Rodriguez, how he's going to hold up. We're talking here on Thursday, as we always do. And Grayson Rodriguez is returning from his latch train tonight uh, on Thursday night, pitching for high A Aberdeen. You guys listening to this show will know how he did. We don't know how he did quite yet. He certainly sounded confident going, going into the start. Um, sounds like they're working him up, you know, slowly to come back from that injury. But 
there's a chance we could see Grayson Rodriguez make one or two starts by the end of the month. And that would be huge, not just to add him to the mix, you know, of top prospects called up this year by the Orioles. We've already seen Abby Rutschman. We've already seen Gunnar Henderson. D.L. Hall is going to be joining the bullpen. Kyle Stowers has been already up with Baltimore as well. There's a litany of names we can go through. But I think if we're getting to a point where the Orioles, every game matters for them. And even if Grayson Rodriguez only makes one or two starts, those could be one, one or two of the games that are matter the most to the Orioles in all this season. And if we're looking at him as one of the top two or three pitchers in that entire organization, when he's healthy, he should absolutely get those starts. So we're going to be keeping a close eye on his health, but the stuff is going to play in the majors. Um, sticking in that AL East, I think the Red Sox should give Tristan Casas a look uh, this month. It's becoming clearer by the day. They're not going to make the postseason. They're under 500 right now. Uh, I know they went out and got Eric Hosmer at the trade deadline. That was more of a present move than a future move. Bobby Dahlbeck has not been the solution at first base. Tristan Casas is. He's been really good at AAA. Uh, I know he's dealt with his own injury issues this summer. But, you know, at a certain point, he is your future of the position, and you need to give him that same opportunity that a Corbin Carroll is getting in Arizona. Uh, Tristan Costas defensively is going to be an upgrade for the Red Sox. He's, the left-handed bat will play. I think his approach will play. Uh, he has power in the profile. It's developing power more than present power maybe, but it's certainly in the tank. Uh, I would love to see him get a chance. Um, and I would also like to see Bobby Miller get a chance with the Dodgers. The Dodgers, as good as they've been and as good as their farm system is, they have not been reliant on rookies this year, basically at all. Yeah, Miguel Vargas come up for two games. Now he's been added beginning of September. If you could have Bobby Miller to that bullpen and he's throwing 100 miles an hour in starts and now all of a sudden you're only asking him to throw one or two innings, think about how that stuff will play. Now, far be it from the Dodgers from needing more help in the month of September. 90 and 38, the Los Angeles Dodgers. I I watched them the other night. They're in town here. They were playing the Mets. Uh, it felt like an NLCS game, honestly, uh, for a regular season matchup. And you just realize like their bullpen is pretty deep. Their lineup is pretty deep. You add Miguel Vargas and potentially Bobby Miller to that mix. That that's that's really special. So um, he's another one I would keep an eye out for. I mean, the, there's all sorts of prospects we could get called up. Well, Ken Waldachuk for the A's, uh, another example of somebody who could win a rotation spot uh, in September. The, it's, it's going to be an exciting month, I feel like. So that's what you got to look forward to in this month in Major League Baseball as top prospects uh, continue to make that climb. And another thing to keep in mind that as guys make the climb to the big leagues, oftentimes that opens the doors uh, for some of the younger talent to make the climb to double A AA or to triple A or wherever else. So keep an eye on minor league transactions as the month goes along. Uh, wrapping up. This week's episode of the show before the show podcast, Jock Jackson will swing by for Ghost of the Miners, and we're back to say goodbye on the other side. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. All of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One never amounted to much. The others never even existed. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Claremont Clarinets. B. The Drum Right Drummers. C. The Tenafly Tenors. You picked the right beat if you boxed to be the drum right drummers who played in an unlikely Oklahoma burg in the early 1920s. Drummond itself wasn't yet a decade old when the drummers marched onto the Western Association Diamonds for the 1920 season. It wasn't diamonds, but oil, that counted off the start of the drummers franchise. In 1912, Thomas Baker Slick discovered an enormous oil field some 35 miles southwest of Tulsa, and local farmer Aaron Drumwright got busy setting up a town so that the slick substance could get into drums right away. 
The drummers could be seen as a symbol for the town's growth. Arriving on the scene as drum rights population exploded to over 6,000. But in 1920, the team gave those fine people only 66 reasons to smile and 62 to frown, failing to snare a title by falling out of step with the Oak Mulgy Drillers, who put every other club in a hole by going 83 and 46. But even though the inaugural drummers finished 16 and a half games out of first place, there were times when they were on a roll. They got disciplined offensive output from outfielder Army Magnus and beat at least one team like a, well, you know. <laughs> the Pahuska Huskers made drum right look all right by establishing a serious downbeat of 33 and 95, 34 whole games beneath even our fifth place drummers. But Drumright crashed to near Pahuskin Lowe's in 21, playing under the moniker The Oilers, but still just as commonly called The Drummers, the 21 Corps, having lost their first skipper, Dick Crittenden, to the rival Henrietta Hens, and never finding their rhythm under the new Drummers major, Dick Spear, went 44 and 108 to wind up in last place. Aww. The Western Association gave Drumright the high hat in 1922, getting a move on from that day forth without a sound from the drummers nor a drop from the Oilers. A combination of fans, business interest, and Drumright town fathers got a club together for the 1923 Oklahoma State League season, but the descendant of the drummers started so bad it got banished to the sticks moving to Ponca City in June after going 11-21 and 21 and failing to attract crowds. And that's how the sound and fury of the drummers signified nothing. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these seashellers sold the Sea of Baseball game tickets on the seashore in the miners of yesteryear? A. The Crisfield Crabbers. B. The Pacifica Prawners. See the Bayville Oyster Boys. Want to know the answer? Get cracking. Or tune in to the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill wants to try every kind of candle, and it's time to get Roman. Big thanks to Josh, as always, for Ghosts of the Miners. Uh, my, my apologies for the uh, the quality of audio the last uh, couple of episodes. I am uh, in a hotel room and don't have my usual mic and headphone set up, but hopefully it's all been fine. It's a free podcast. You can deal with it. MILB.TV is where you can catch all the top talent in minor league baseball. Sam, what are you watching on MILB TV as we hit the final month of the season? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm gonna shout out Mike Caps once again. Uh, you know, thanks again for for joining us, uh, Mike. But you can listen to Mike this weekend and through next week. Round Rock is at home, uh, which means you know all Express games uh, will be you know broadcast through the Express feed on MILB.TV. So you can listen to Mike, tune into his stories that he talked about on our show. I'm sure he's going to bring several of them to the podcast or to the broadcast rather. But that also means that you will be able to watch Josh Young. Uh, if you are a Rangers fan, you want to check in and see if he will get called up by the Texas Rangers in the, the next couple of weeks, check in on how his power is playing. Uh, but I want to shout out one specific uh, series that Round Rock Express are currently playing, which is against Oklahoma City. Uh, and if you've followed MILB.com or MLB.com slash pipeline at all in the last week, you might know that James Outman, Dodgers prospect, cycled not once but twice within four games that it was incredible to, to follow that the first cycle finished on a walk-off homer which must be one of the coolest things you can experience in baseball uh our our buddy and, and podcast friend alex freeman had a great call of james outman's walk-off homer to complete the cycle and then three games later goes out and does it again not on a walk-off homer this one this game was in round rock uh, but needed the single, the easiest thing to get, then walks in the later innings. So you think, okay, it's done. No, it's not. Don't ever rule out James Outman. He's going to do something special. He's been on an absolute tear for OKC. I mentioned Miguel Vargas got called up a bit by the Dodgers. James Outman has certainly earned the chance to get called up if 
rosters were expanded beyond 28, you know he would be with L.A. right now. Uh, I hope he gets his, his chance because his bat's on absolute fire. Uh, and if he's cycling twice in four games, who knows what he can do next. So tune in, watch him, Josh Young, listen to Mike Caps. Lots to, to follow here this weekend uh, between Round Rock and OKC. Tyler, what are you watching? So I'm going to go to the Baltimore Orioles organization. You mentioned Grayson Rodriguez, who is getting set to return. He right now is with High A Aberdeen, but keep an eye on how quickly he moves because you could very soon see him uh, up with AAA Norfolk. Norfolk will be at home this weekend taking on Lehigh Valley. Um, and for Orioles fans, there's a lot to be excited about right now. Not only on that roster, uh, Gunnar Henderson potentially in the next few days, Colton Kowser as well, um, you know, Jordan Westberg, uh, Gunnar Henderson having moved up now. The talent that has gone through Norfolk this year has been really impressive, and you can catch the tides on MILB.TV. So that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, you can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. You can find us all on Twitter. I'm at Tyler Mon, Sam's at Sam Dykes or MILB. Benjamin Hill at Ben's Biz, Josh Jackson, Josh Jackson, MILB. And uh, for all those guys, a huge thanks to Mike Caps once more. My name is Tyler Mon, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you.